Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. This conversation is about two books of the Old Testament, Joel and Amos. Mike, as always, you're going to give us some context, I'm sure, but what's the connection between the two? They come next to one another. That's the easiest one, isn't it? (laughs) But perhaps a little bit deeper, one of the reasons we put these together in looking at them is that they both have something to say about that theme of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was originally seen as any day when God intervened to bring about his purposes. But increasingly in the history of Israel, it was seen as becoming the final day when God would intervene to overcome all his enemies. And quite a lot of the prophets talk about this. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, uh, Zechariah, Malachi. So in other words, it was a pretty common, well-known theme at the time. But the common understanding was, yes, this day of the Lord will happen, this day when he acts in justice to deal with his enemies. But the prophets will turn it round and say, but yes, that will include you unless your hearts are right with God too. So both of these prophets are prophets that pick up this theme and so it's convenient to put them together. So let's start with Joel and um, remind us where he is. Uh, Is he in the north or is he in the south? (laughs) Having said to you earlier how important it is that we locate the prophets historically to be able to understand them well, this is one of the prophets where I have to say to you, we don't have the faintest idea. There's actually no evidence in the book itself to give us any sort of geographical details or historical details. There's no kings or dates or places or jobs or or anything else so the short answer is we we're not quite sure whether it's north or south or what time it happened but there are a couple of indicators that might just help us the setting for joel is an ecological disaster in the form of a massive locust swarm that has devastated the land But there are two verses that help us locate when that might be. So chapter 3 and verse 2 of Joel speaks about God gathering his enemies for judgment because of, quotes what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel. And that suggests that he's looking back to that destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel that clearly must have already happened now in 722-721 B.C., And Israel is rarely mentioned in this uh, prophecy. The other key date is chapter 2, verse 17, where he talks about priests ministering before the Lord. So that obviously means the temple was still standing. So it must have been before 586 BC when it was destroyed, or it could possibly have been after it was rebuilt in 516. So you can see, you know, the chronology is not very precise you know it's over that period probably between 722 and 586 probably in the south so we can draw that out as probable i think reasonable conclusions but beyond that we can't be really any more precise you know while the chronology is not clear i think the message is clear and the message is timeless 
And you say that relates to a swarm of locusts. Yes, at some point in probably Judah's history, they had had this devastating plague of locusts. Now, locusts are a sort of thing you live with in that part of the world, but clearly here was a, a most uh, enormous plague that had ruined the crops and therefore, of course, in an agrarian society, had ruined the economy. I mean, we've lived through times, haven't we, recently, where a devastating event in the form of COVID-19 has devastated the economy. So I think we can really identify with what had been going on here uh, for people. And, I mean, probably all of us have seen on TV at least uh, locusts swarming. Actually, locusts are, are pretty solitary creatures normally, but uh, they they can get a bit like sort of teenagers. When they're bored, they start to hang around one another on the street corners, and then they start misbehaving, and then they start to swarm. And something happens, it gets kicked off, and the swarm gets bigger and bigger, and they get absolutely huge. Uh, in fact, a swarm can measure up to 460 square miles and, and pack between 40 to 80 million locusts into less than half a square mile. And then when you consider that each locust can eat its own weight in plants every day, you can begin to see how a swarm of that size could ruin your economy overnight. And, and that's exactly what has happened in this setting for this prophetic book. Like a massive army. That's exactly a picture he uses. In fact, he's very graphic in his description. And, and in chapter one and two, he likens it to an army, uh, very graphic pictures. He talks about how these uh, locusts have laid waste my vines, ruined my fig trees, stripped off their bark, leaving their branches uh, white. Uh, chapter two opens with, with God saying, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm. It's an alarm call, a signal for these locusts that are coming, and he goes on to describe it in graphic form as like an army attacking the land. Interesting, it's God who blows the trumpet. This is not just a random event, it would seem, from this book. This is something that God has called for, that God has allowed. Why? to waken up his people. As we've seen in so many of these books, God's people becoming complacent, comfortable in their lifestyle, drifting from him. So it looks like God has allowed this to come, even sent this, in order to get people to think, what is it that you are trusting in? And do you know what? I can't help but think again of the coronavirus pandemic that's faced us and you know you can get into the theology of did God send it did God permit it you can be here for days arguing that one but what it has done is cause people to stop and think about what's valuable to them you know people have seen that things like family is important to them spending time together is important to them does it really matter if I work 14 hours a day in the office that you're probably not going into anymore and so Events like this in the world can have a way of waking people up to question what is important. And that's exactly what happens through this army of locusts that invade the land.
So it's a, a foretaste, is it really, of, of what is inevitable? Yes, and that's the picture that Joel picks up now, because what he does is he sees this sort of ecological disaster as a as a warning shot, as, as a foretaste of this day of the Lord that we spoke about. And as surely as the, the army of locusts has come and done its work, he warns the people, look, can you not see unless we change, unless we repent, unless we get back to living with God at the center and treating one another as he wants us to live, then the day of the Lord will come and it will be even more distressing and damaging to us. So he's using it as, as a picture of uh, the coming day of the Lord. And in light of that, calls people not just to stand there and say, oh my goodness, that's bad, isn't it? But actually to do something about it. What should they do about it? Chapter 2, verse 12 even now declares the Lord, even now at this point, you know, when it looks like it's gone as far as it can, even now, there's always an even now with God, which is great. Even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. A reference there to how they would tear their garments as a sign they were mourning or repenting and God said yeah that's all external and superficial I want your hearts to be torn open to me return to the Lord your God for he is ah here's this great revelation of the Old Testament he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love and he relents from sending calamity who knows he may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing so there's the promise there that if God's people will turn again to him, then there's the promise that he will turn back to them and both restore and renew them. So the people are given a choice. Yes, just as we are today. I mean, this is the message that comes out in the Bible again and again. God never forces a decision on anyone because what he wants is heart relationship with us. And if we have no choice, there can be no heart relationship. So this is an appeal from God to, to his people to let their hearts be touched again. Remember, this was clearly at a time when there was much religion, little relationship, lots of sacrifices and keeping of the festivals and everything else, but it wasn't touching their heart, either vertically or horizontally, towards God or towards others. And so this is God's appeal to them. God wants them to choose that which is right. I have this picture from what you were saying earlier of God blowing the trumpet, the commander of the army, that this is war, this is revenge, or is it not quite like that? I don't think it's revenge in terms of what God has done. Um, this is not God sitting in heaven and thinking, right, you miserable lot. You know, you turned away from me. I'm going to think of something nasty to send on you now, which is how we can drift into thinking if we're not careful when bad stuff happens in our life. But this most definitely is God at work in his world. After all, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the psalmist says. This is God most definitely working in his world to, to seek to nudge people and draw them back to know what 
to do again what is right and to get back to relationship with him. So it's his, it's his nudge, it's his, it's his appeal to, to get back to that heart relationship. And so this day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord, is, is, is that a, a menacing promise? I think it's a warning, without a doubt. And it is a very clear warning, both in Joel and the other prophets who use this picture, of if we do not change, then there are inevitable consequences. And yet, along with that, there's also promise. Because if you like, if the first half of Joel is God's call to his people, then the second half of Joel is really God's answer to his people. And, and perhaps just two things I can pick out there, which are both really great. First of all, God promises to restore his people in, in chapter 2 and verse 25, there is a wonderful verse that I've used so many times as a pastor with people over the years. He says, I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. One of the other versions says, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Now, come on, when locusts devastate something, it's gone. It's gone for good. How can you restore what's gone? And yet God says, I will do that. If you'll turn back to me, what has gone, I can restore. So there's the warning of judgment to come if we don't turn back to him. And yet if we do, God says, I can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. I've used that so many times pastorally when people feel they've wasted time or wasted their lives or something has gone wrong. And to be able to go to this verse and say, but this is God's promise. You think it's gone but god can restore and make good again now it might not be exactly the same thing that was lost but it will be something equivalent or usually with god something even better and i just say to listeners today if you feel that through bad choices or sin you you've ended up with things being devastated just come back to god because he can restore what's been eaten so there's a promise to restore his people and here's the second thing there's a promise to renew his people. Because Joel looks ahead, not just at recovery from this particular incident. He looks ahead really towards the end of the age when God is going to do something amazing for his people. And there's a passage in Joel chapter 2 that many Christians will be familiar with. Chapter 2, verse 28, he says, And afterwards so in other words after all these events have happened and afterwards i will pour out my spirit on all people so where there's been a pouring out of judgment for those who turn back to him there can be a pouring out of his spirit he says i'll pour out my spirit on all people your sons and daughters will prophesy your old men will dream dreams your young men will see visions even on my servants both men and women i will pour out my spirit on those days and that of course is a prophecy that Peter would pick up on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out and he's able to say, this is it. This is what Joel was prophesying all those years ago. A promise of restoration and a promise of renewal 
by his Holy Spirit. So Joel gives us both. He gives us the challenge of the warning of the day of the Lord, of his judgment coming if we continue to persist in our evil ways. And yet there's hope, a hope of restoration, even what the locusts have eaten being restored and a promise of renewal through a personal experience of his Holy Spirit, who would now not just be for the big people of life, prophet, priests and kings, but for the ordinary people of life, both men and women, even servants in those days. Everybody will be included in what God is going to do, Joel sees. Well, let's look at the next book, the book of Amos. Who was Amos? Uh, now we're able to be much more clear about this one. We get an awful lot in terms of who he is and uh, what period of time he was operating and, and, and so on. So and much of that comes in the opening verses, uh, as it often does with these prophets. The opening words are the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. A shepherd, but we also discover in chapter 7, verse 14, that as well as a shepherd, he was a tender of fig trees. But we shouldn't think of him as a poor, simple farmer. It looks like he was sort of a reasonably well-off landowner and someone who kept uh, sheep and fig trees. How do we know? Well, the very language and structure of the book reflect an educated man. So this is not just a sort of poor peasant farmer. It's beautifully poetic. He constructs things together. He loves groups of fives and sevens, by the way, in this book. So he's not a professional prophet. He's not come from a school of prophets. He was busy, you know, in his field of fig trees one day when God called him to be a prophet. And Tekoa, where is Tekoa? Well, Tekoa is a, a small town 12 miles south of Jerusalem. So he's from the southern nation. But here's the interesting thing. He is sent to the north, to the northern nation of Israel. Now, you know, there was at best animosity between the two at times, just outright opposition and hatred of one another. So he's a southerner sent to the north. And as we still know today in many nations, you know, when people are sent from one part of a nation to another, it, you know, they're not always received particularly well. So we know uh, who he is, where he was prophesying, a southerner sent to the north. And we can date him as well this time because he goes on to place his very first prophetic word in the reigns of King Uzziah of Judah in the south and King Jeroboam the second of Israel in the north. And that gives us a window of between 760 to 750 BC. But we can pin it down even more because he notes that his vision was, quotes two years before the earthquake. And there's historical evidence of a powerful earthquake in the region in 760 BC. So that would pinpoint him to around 762 BC. So unlike Joel, of whom I could tell you nothing about where he came from, where he lived or when with great certainty, this time we can pin this guy down pretty closely. Was his message only for the people in the north? Well, yes and no. His main message really was for the people of the north. That was what God had called him to bring. But he's very, very clever. Because what he does, and I think he does this particularly 
because he's a southerner, because he's from Judah and he knows there would probably be muttering and complaints about who's this southerner coming to tell us how to live. He's really very clever because his opening prophecies aren't about them, aren't about Israel at all. He starts prophesying against all the nations round about. So he sort of works his way round. Starts with Aram, Syria. Then he does Philistia, Phoenicia, Edom, Ammon, Moab. And then he is really clever with the next one. Judah, the southern people that he has just come from and who, as far as the northerners were concerned, were a bit full of themselves because they thought they had the temple and the Ark of the Covenant there. So he prophesies against all of them. And I like to imagine the crowd gathering around him as he's prophesying and them nodding, nodding. That's right. That's right. Those Phoenicians, they're a terrible bunch, aren't they? Yeah, the Moabites, you you tell them, you tell them, Amos. Oh, ho, ho, Judah, you bet, Judah. And then suddenly in chapter 2, verse 6, when he's sort of got them laughing, he punches them on the lips <laughs> and he brings his word to them and starts to prophesy for the rest of his book about Israel, the northern nation. So very clever technique that he uses here. What essentially is the message for the people in the north? Well, he sums it up very nicely for us in his opening words to the north. I, I, I'll just read these to you. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. So there straight away, he's launched into some of the things that he is accusing them of. We could sum it up as social sins, sexual sins, spiritual sins. At every level of life, they have turned away from the one that they say they are following. And one of the big themes that stands out in Amos as you read through it is his passionate belief that if we truly love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, then we will truly love our neighbour as ourselves. And they simply were not doing that, selling the righteous for silver selling people into slavery when they couldn't pay their debts, even selling the needy for a pair of a sandal. Someone maybe had brought sandals as a pledge for a loan and they couldn't pay it back at the end of the day, so was selling them off into slavery because of it. Huge challenge here in the book of Amos that is still as relevant for us today about how faith, if it's real, has to be worked out in the way that we deal with others. I was going to say, it's written thousands of years ago, but it sounds surprisingly contemporary. I think Amos is incredibly contemporary. You know, some of the prophets perhaps we can relate to a little more than others, but I think this is a real word in season for a comfortable people 
in a sort of comfortable area of time. We, you know, we've perhaps had our comfort disturbed a little uh, during all the stuff we've had to face during coronavirus. But really, you know, in the West, we've had a very comfortable life by and large. And it's interesting as you look at the nations of the West, as you look at the United Kingdom, in particular where I come from, how over recent decades, as people have become more comfortable economically, financially secure, they've had less and less need for God, less and less time for God. And the sort of society we've become has become a society that's less and less caring of one another. So Amos really has great challenges and messages for today still. And it also seems to say this whole faith thing isn't just about believing. No, not at all. Faith has to be turned into action. In fact, faith or religion without action is utterly meaningless to God. There's a, a great passage in chapter four where he picks up on two of the big shrines, two of the big sanctuaries that there were in the north in Bethel and Gilgal. And God says through Amos, go to Bethel and sin, go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years, burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings, boast about them, for this is what you love to do. So clearly, there was tons of religion. And yet he goes on to say, and yet you have not returned to me. Isn't that interesting? All the religious externals, the paraphernalia, the sacrifices, the offerings. And yet in their heart, their heart hadn't returned to God. In fact, four times in the following verses from that passage that I just read, that phrase, yet you have not returned to me, five times, sorry, I just miscounted there, five times that same phrase, yet you have not returned to me, occurs. And then a really challenging verse towards the end of chapter four, therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel, and because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. Oh, Israel. Now, very often, perhaps we've been used to seeing signs like prepare to meet your God. Someone has a banner in the street, you know, walking up and down with it and, you know, calling people out in the midst of their shopping to repent and come back to God. It's interesting in the Bible. That was not a word to sinners. That was a word to the people of God themselves. It's you I'm calling to prepare to meet your God. Because they were hypocritical. Absolutely absolutely hypocritical. And he goes on to say, you're not going to escape. This day of the Lord is surely coming, you know, and each time something bad comes along, you might think that you escape. And he's got this lovely picture in chapter five, where he says, you know, it's going to be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. You know, you, th you think you got away from that trouble and whoops, you went round the corner and there's a bear waiting for you as though you entered the house and then put your hand on the wall and a snake bit you. God's judgment is surely coming and you cannot escape it because God hates empty religion. Let me just read you one more passage perhaps about that same theme because this is a key one in chapter five. 
where he says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. Ooh, it's a challenge for some of us, isn't it? I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's what I want from you, God says. If you are truly my people, then come on, let justice and righteousness roll out from you. So a totally relevant book, even for us today. Absolutely. I can't think of a book that's, that's more relevant for us in the 21st century in the West than the prophet Amos, where we are challenged to remember that religion without relationship is empty. It's relationship with God, true heart relationship, not just externals, not just going to church, reading your Bible, giving a donation to some charity. Real heart relationship with God and with others so that your relationship with God flows out with justice and righteousness towards people, that you do your bit to bring about that, that you're engaged with anything you can on a wider scale to producing a society like that, because those things really matter to God, the book of Amos tells us. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation, this is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.